Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and we have a great show today. We're talking about inflation versus deflation versus disinflation. What's going on right now? What should we expect in the next 12 months? And what are the implications for the real estate market? And joining me, I think I have the very best guest in the world to address this topic. Joining me, I have Colin Roche, who is the founder and CIO of Discipline Funds, as well as the author of the Pragmatic Capitalism book and blog. Colin, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Awesome to be here. I don't know how many people find inflation to be the most exciting <laughs> thing well, in the world, but certainly, <laughs> certainly this audience does, so... You know, it's like a weird Venn diagram. It's like a Venn diagram of of someone who uh, invests in real estate, uh, maybe has read like Ron Paul's books, uh, and reads Pragmatic Capitalist. The Venn diagram of that person is extremely yeah. interested in this. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny too. I mean, especially the last 10, 15, you could argue even 20 years is like inflation, rates of inflation have fallen. I mean, people kind of stopped caring about it for a long time and became, mm-hmm. I think, you know, somewhat, especially on the policy side, became somewhat oblivious to the risks of it. And I think that's what's kind of interesting now is that, you know, even with an economy that by many metrics is still doing relatively well, you know, mm-hmm. you look at things like the unemployment rate, I mean, you know, record lows and things like that. There's a lot of metrics by which you could argue the economy is doing really well. But the inflation story is so powerful. I think people are now remembering that, hey, inflation is a big, big deal. And you can have all these you know, metrics by which supposedly the economy is doing well. But if inflation is high, people don't feel it. And that's a big part of why you know, like consumer sentiment is so bad. And people mm-hmm. feel like you know, there's this big debate about whether we're in a recession or not. And to me, when you've got inflation that's as high as it is, the technical definition of a, of a recession is almost meaningless because it people feel like they're in a recession because in large part, their disposable incomes just don't tend to keep up with what's going on with current inflation trends. And so it feels like a bad environment, even though by many metrics, it might not actually be you know, reflected in the data. Right. So then that's a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. If, if consumers think we're in a recession, then we're in a recession, right? Probably the textbook term would be uh, animal spirits or, or something. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's back in, you know, the the 70s and 80s, like a lot of people used to track something like the misery index, which, which is basically just the unemployment rate plus the rate of inflation. And that gen- gives you a pretty general idea of the balance of the two. And mm-hmm. in the last 10, 15 years, when you had low rates of unemployment and low rates of inflation, an index like that reflects a generally you know, high consumer sentiment. Things feel good in general. And now, you know, when you look at something like the misery index, the balance of those 
is consistent with eras like the 1970s where people, they don't feel that great, mainly because, I mean, in this environment, it's all inflation. But, you know, that is a good reflection of kind of the historical trend if you go back and look at the something like the misery index. Right. And obviously, things are very different now than in the 1970s. And really, the topic I wanted to dive into in this episode, inflation uh, versus deflation, and then also disinflation, because I think, you know, I talk with a lot of RIAs and wealth managers and asset managers, and even among that, you know, top tier professional group, I think there's still some misunderstanding uh, about what, you know, how inflation really works, some of the the complexities of it. And, and even, for example, like when the Fed talks about inflation being transitory, transitory, excuse me, you know, they're really referring to disinflation. They're not necessarily yeah. referring to like a, a reversal, like deflation. So if we could, I'd like just to start and, and ask you, what is inflation? You know, we all have a textbook that we've read that says what inflation is, but I, I think your answer is a lot more interesting. Well, the the sort of textbook or the Fed's definition of inflation, the Bureau of Labor Statistics definition is basically they're using the the change in prices of a basket of goods. And so what they've done is the BLS has constructed a, a basket that they they try to reflect what consumers actually buy in any given year. And, you know, the part of the reason that predicting inflation and understanding inflation is so difficult is because the data that we use and the inputs that go into this are inherently very imprecise. And so, I mean, Mm -hmm. think about how hard it is to collect actual, actual, you know, the the data from households that actually reflects what prices are. I mean, we're talking about a huge economy, incredibly complex uh, dynamics here that the whole process of just building an index like that is incredibly difficult to do in real time. And so, the, the BLS catches a lot of flack in part because they have a somewhat impossible job. And so, but in general, what they're doing is they're building a basket of goods that tries to reflect consumer prices. And then they're calculating the rate of change of that over various time periods. And so not only is the, the basket relatively you know, hard to compile, but the data is inherently rear view mirror looking. And so this is the thing that makes the Fed's job really, really difficult is that they're data dependent and they're looking at rear view mirror looking data, which, you know, and they're not really they're not really in the business of trying to make very long term forecasts about this stuff, because I think they've learned over time how difficult that is. And so they go mm-hmm. off of the data and, you know, they're they're then trying to project that out to some degree in a manner where they're trying to balance really their their mandates of of maintaining low employment and price stability but you know the i think the tricky thing with a lot of this is that you've got a lot of different measures of inflation so you have like the consumer price index and then you mm-hmm. have the fed's preferred measure the personal consumption expenditures metric and you know, they dice these things up in a lot of different ways. They they use core and headline and core is basically stripping out food and energy. And they're trying to, to some degree, to smooth this data. So the reason they prefer the PCE core is because it's a broader index. It's collecting not only consumer data, but also business data. 
And they're stripping out food and energy because they're they're typically more volatile parts of the indices. So, you know, like anyone who follows the commodity markets, for instance, knows how volatile oil prices can be. And you get readings from the oil markets that on a month over month basis could make inflation look a lot more volatile. And so they're trying to smooth this data out, you know, which causes a whole different set of issues because oil is actually a huge input that feeds through into lots of other inputs in the economy. And so, you know, the the whole process of defining inflation is difficult. The whole process of building a basket that reflects it is difficult. And then obviously predicting it out into the future is, I would argue, one of the most difficult things to try to do in macro econ. So this is all a very imprecise process from the beginning. Um, which is, and Colin, you, you didn't even mention money supply or monetary policy and any of that, because I, I think that's so interesting because, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, inflation, it's an increase in the money supply. Uh, you didn't even mention that. So is, is, that, a, yeah, so, is that a misunderstanding? Well, in a general sense, I think that here's where this gets really messy is that when you define an inflation increase as an inf- increase in the money supply, well, then you get into really a debate about what is money. And that is a very, money is a really messy uh, kind of dirty word in finance, I think, and in economics in general, because money doesn't have a really specific definition. There's, I mean, even the Fed uses, you know, M1, M2, M3, right, MZ, right. you know, there's all sorts of different, you know, varying measures of money. In general, here's the thing that, I find problematic about defining inflation as a an increase in the money supply is that money in the modern monetary system for all practical purposes is created by banks for the most part. And that involves the process of loans creating deposits. And so deposits in an economics textbook are they're they're just credit. They're not the real thing in an economics textbook which I find to be frankly pretty phony because you know, if you walk into Walmart and and you pay for something with a bank deposit, Walmart, by any measure, considers that money. You know, yeah. they're not Walmart isn't saying, oh, like you need to give us real dollars. You need to give us physical, right. physical dollars versus deposits. And so and here's the thing is that in a in a credit based monetary system, the the supply of deposits is pretty much always expanding in the long run, like go back through history and you look at the charts of of the the amount of, of money deposits in the in the financial system you'll find that the deposits are pretty much always expanding because the amount of loans is always expanding in the economy so you get into these very sort of mundane debates about well when the government expands their balance sheet you know through something like fiscal policy and it creates more bonds well what are they creating they're creating what is essentially a money like instrument I would actually say that fiscal policy deficit spending is more akin to money printing than something like monetary policy and quantitative easing. In fact, I've argued for 15 years now that quantitative easing can't really technically even be called money printing because it is a ba- it's basically the process of swapping treasury bonds for deposits. You're changing the composition of outstanding privately held assets, but you're not actually changing the quantity of them. Whereas fiscal policy changes the quantity, so does deposit uh, creation. So loans create deposits and they expand the actual supply of of assets and liabilities in the economy, which is a 
that's a big, big deal because it's you're changing purchasing power of somebody when you give them more credit. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't want to say that money supply increases are not, certainly they can create inflation. And I've argued in the last 12 to 24 months that the huge fiscal policies of the last, you know, the last couple of years would certainly create inflation. But you can get into these very textbooky, wonky, I think imprecise discuss- discussions where like, you know, for instance, a lot of people thought that QE coming out of 2008 was going to cause hyperinflation because technically from a textbook perspective, you created more reserves, you created more deposits, and right. that technically created a big increase in the money supply in a textbook manner. But if you look at it from a more, I think, sort of practical perspective through, I think, the lens that I operate through, for instance, you were really just swapping treasury bonds for deposits and you were changing the composition of privately held assets. But you weren't necessarily increasing that composition, which is, I think, a big it's a big, big lesson coming out of the financial crisis versus COVID is that when you look at what was done in both periods, the Fed actually responded in very, very similar ways in both crises. They expanded their balance sheet enormously. They cut mm-hmm. interest rates to zero. One had a big, big increase in inflation, whereas the other one didn't. And I think that when you look at the difference, well, the big difference was that fiscal policy was very, very different coming out of COVID. And there was a huge, you know, six, $7 trillion increase in deficit spending coming out of COVID. Whereas mm-hmm. from coming out of the, the GFC, the great financial crisis, yeah, deficit spending was big by historical measures then, but it really, it was, you know, the rescue package was like $800 billion, which, you know, looks like a drop in the bucket compared to what's been done lately. So right. that's a big, big, powerful lesson in my mind is that fiscal policy, it, it can cause big inflation. What about policy beyond fiscal, though? Because, uh, for instance, I'm thinking of the labor market and supply shortages, and a lot of it is policy, right? Not not policy from the Federal Reserve, but, you know, political level policy, whether state level federal policy, you know, whether we're talking about disincentivizing labor, uh, disincentivizing uh, work or or literally, you know, just shutting down entire industries for, for several months and really yeah. constraining that. So it's like on the one hand, you have all this government money. So there's more money, more demand entering the market um, with the fiscal policy, but you also have uh, fewer goods and services, right? You had the perfect recipe for inflation with COVID mm-hmm. because you basically... You shut down the economy. You told people to stay home and basically not work to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And then you gave them money to, in a lot of cases, to do nothing, which is, you know, from a basic, even from a basic textbook perspective, you know, you've got the same amount of supply. You're going to have more demand. You're going to get rising prices. And so it, it was, I was surprised by the extent to which the Fed seemed surprised about inflation rising. And they, I think um, I think they underestimated the degree to which this was all, you know, just supply driven. So a lot mm-hmm. of this was inherently supply driven in the sense that, you know, we shut down factories and, you know, you just you, you had entire economies in places like, you know, Malaysia and China and Vietnam, which are big manufacturing hubs for the U.S. economy right. that basically became you know, non-existent for, for a few years. And so 
I don't know. It's tricky. It's really easy to to look back at policy and say, you know, oh, they did this wrong and they did that wrong. Um, You know, I try to be somewhat forgiving because I understand how difficult all of this is to predict. But in retrospect, even though the transitory narrative was very bad because I think it it was a miscommunication of the way the Fed perceives inflation, which is basically, you know, they're looking at rates of change. They're not looking at just the price index, which is, I think your average person, when they hear the word transitory, they say, well, my beer used to cost $5 before COVID. Now it costs $10. If it's transitory, I would expect that to come back to $5 again, which is not really the way the Fed actually views things. If, if your beer costs five bucks in year one, 10 bucks in year two, and then 10 bucks in year three. Well, mm-hmm. the Fed actually says, well, the rate of change between years two and three was transitory. It, it slowed. It was 0% basically. Whereas your average person just looks at your $10 beer and they say, you know, well, I'm, I'm twice as bad off as I was before because my beer now costs hundred percent more than it did in year one. I don't care mm-hmm. about, you know, the rate of change so much. So that was, that was a big policy blunder in that a lot of the way the Fed works is through communicating effectively. And they rely on, you know, what's called open mouth policy and being able to communicate their policies to people in a way that establishes expectations. And I think they they bungled that to a large degree coming out of COVID in 2020 and 2021. And I think they had to they ended up having to backpedal out of that. So when they say inflation is transitory, I mean, that's like it's a, it's like a meme now. Um, that's really referring to disinflation is, I think, what you're suggesting, whereas in the mind of the average consumer. But I would say even in the, in the mind of many investment professionals, you know, they, they didn't necessarily uh, link that to disinflation. So it's like with inflation, if you have 8% inflation, the floor is raised 8%, right? And so yeah. when they say transitory, they're really meaning, well, the floor is not going to rise as fast as it has been, but that doesn't mean that the prices are going to come back down. You've established that. You could have before. 7% inflation coming off of 8% and the Fed would say, well, this is starting to look transitory. And so, and you're yeah. actually, you know, I, I'm on record as having said that I think inflation peaked basically earlier this year, which you know, according to the data looks correct, but it's not, you know, the problem for even for the Fed right now is that even though like core PCE inflation, it was like, I think the January or February reading was 5.3%. We're currently at like Mm 4.6. The problem for the Fed is that even though that's technically transitory, so we're getting disinflation, which is, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's lower rates of positive inflation, basically, you know, 4.6% 4.6% relative to the Fed's target of 2% is still a really worrisome number for the Fed. So even though we're actually starting to get inflation that looks increasingly transitory, mm-hmm. um, the Fed is still very, very concerned about a, you know, they're really worried about a repeat of like the 1970s, this, this 10-year period where inflation is, you know, like high single digits. And so they're they're operating from a, a perspective of, I think they want to just make sure that that doesn't happen because 10 years of double digit inflation or even high single digit inflation, it's disastrous. Um, so they want to make sure that that doesn't happen. They're 
they're really kind of screwed though, because I think that <laughs> what they're what they're doing now is they have to be, you know, they're looking at rear view looking data basically. Yeah. And they're getting these these readings that are coming in on a year over year, month over month basis, and operating off of that analysis where they're now trying to avoid a 1970s style environment. And it, where they're at right now with policy means that they have to remain so restrictive that there's this really fine line where it's now increasingly starting to look like, are they slowing the economy so much? And have they made, you know, especially segments like real estate so restrictive yeah. that you kind of can't avoid a hard landing? And so that's, you know, that's the thing that I think like the stock market is grappling with now, where the risk of of a deflation or a, you know, a really hard landing, it becomes higher and higher the more the longer and longer the Fed remains as restrictive as they are. So uh, inflation is going to cause deflation because it's going to force the Fed to look like they are really taking strong action, raising interest rates. And but before we get to kind of that near term, I, I kind of wanted to go back to the 1970s and some of those, you know, secular long-term macro trends, though, that you mentioned. Um, and I think your writing on PragCap has really influenced me on this, just, just the long-term deflationary pressures of the global economy, of, of our economy. So, I mean, to me, it was almost... I, I never really saw a circumstance where inflation could be eight or 10% for like a decade. It almost seemed like some people are yeah. politi politically rooting for that almost, but it's like, this has nothing to do with, with politics. I mean, maybe it does, but you know, don't invest based on what, what you think should happen or whatever, you know, like take, take a reality check in the 1970s, there was a huge demographic boom going on. So it was, that's just like a constant pressure creating demand. Uh, whereas now we're at totally in a totally de different demographic you know place than we were then and then you have you know technology globalization productivity all of those gains since you know the, the 90s or, or really since the 70s i guess that are creating this deflationary pressure so do yeah. you think that do you think that the default kind of overall pressure is deflationary I would, yeah, I would certainly argue that as a as a sort of baseline, there mm -hmm. are these just huge secular trends that I think are they're not. I don't want to say they're necessarily deflationary, but they're not consistent with very high and sustained 1970 style inflation. So you know, okay. you mentioned you had. I mean, everything was inflationary in the 70s. Not only. You had the commodity boom. You had the you know the the baby boom. Um, so big demographic boom. You had the you know you didn't have the same technology drivers. You had totally different like labor policies where mm -hmm. unionization was really a big powerful mover back then. And for the most part, all of these big trends are they're mostly non-existent today. You had you know I think that the the one thing that could theoretically cause high sustained inflation, I think, was if you saw really high sustained fiscal policy. I think that's the thing that could completely offset a lot of these big macro drivers okay. and create a sort of sustained high inflation. And so 
if you had a, um, if you had like MMT advocates or, you know, even like a Bernie Sanders as, you know, controlling all the policy, I think you could end up in a scenario where you got a, a high, even, you know, sing, middle single digit inflation on a sort of 10 year basis. That was, it would feel somewhat similar to the 1970s. But, you know, a lot of the, the one thing that a lot of people don't talk about right now is that there's a huge fiscal retrenchment going on right now. So the Fed is very restrictive right now with policy. They're bringing in the balance sheet. They're, you know, they're obviously raising interest rates a lot. But the thing that's not getting a lot of airtime is that fiscal policy on a on a relative basis has been brought way in. So, you know, we run surpluses in in months on the treasury spending side of of things in the last year, which is so, so Colin, that just sounds heard of in, that sounds that sounds crazy to me that you know the surplus. So when you say fiscal retrenchment, I mean is that in comparison to like 2020 where it's like or 2021? It's like well, of course there's going to be a snapback effect, but but what could possibly be causing a fiscal surplus? I mean, our tax re- is it just capital gains receipts are so high. Huge, or? huge, huge surge in tax receipts because the economy has okay. been fairly strong and the. You know, you had all the the COVID stimulus basically peeled off, and okay. you know the the government has has dialed it back. There, we're still technically running deficits, but you know, put these things in perspective. Through through this point in the fiscal year last year, we were running something like a two trillion dollar deficit, whereas up to this point this year, it's like two hundred billion. So we're still technically. You know, if you want to call that two hundred billion dollars, it's technically new. I like to say it's new financial asset creation. So to get away <laughs> from the sloppiness of the term money printing, sure. Um, but you know, the, you know, on a relative basis, this is a huge, huge retrenchment in fiscal policy compared to to what we were doing during the COVID year. So, you know, these are big, big movers though that take. You know, the thing that kind of has me worried about the the macro economy, um, people I've noticed people on Twitter have jokingly been calling me zero hedge um, in, in reference to like zero hedge because I've been sounding somewhat bearish for like the last like, you know, nine months or so. Sure. But which is unusual for me because I'm kind of a happy go lucky, super, I'm always super optimistic in the long run, but yeah. I haven't felt this negative about the macro economy since God, probably like the, you know, the financial crisis period. Um, and a big part of that is just that when you've got, when you've got policy established the way that it is, it's very hard to get growth because you rely on basically the private sector completely running with the baton. And that's the thing that you just don't see right now. You don't see the credit growth, you know, thinking of the economy as basically like, you know, if you wanted to think of it as like one big balance sheet, well, you get credit growth basically in, or financial asset growth from really from like three places. It's the, you know, outside the United States. So, you know, is the rest of the world contributing in a way that positively contributes to the United States, the government balance sheet, and then the private sector balance sheet. And when you look at the private sector balance sheet, well, it's not doing enough right now to offset those other two sectors. And so that's a big part of why growth is really stagnant right now. And it's, you know, looking at the, you know, through the the scope of like the financial crisis, well, or sorry, the, the COVID period, well, the household balance sheet was really weak, retrenched mm-hmm. bigly, but then the, 
the government balance sheet blew up. And so they spent so much money that it completely, it more than offset all of the income loss that was happening in the private sector, even though you had unemployment that surged to, you know, double digits. So, you know, looking at it through the scope though of like the, the three main drivers of the aggregate balance sheet right now, you've got a big retrenchment in the, you know, the housing market is a huge, huge driver of this because the housing market is essentially 70% of all household debt. And when, when that balance sheet starts to slow, mm-hmm. if you don't have something to offset it, well, it's really hard to get economic growth. And this is part of why going back to that definition of money, it's really, you know, it's really crucial to consider credit as money because credit is the thing that essentially creates the money that then creates the demand that ultimately creates economic growth. So then in the next 12 months, you kind of reference that you think that the Fed is almost uh, stuck or, or trapped. Do you see them having to raise interest rates enough, um, you know, that will have, you know, and, and you are, you also said that you think inflation has already peaked. So it's just depending on how you measure it, it doesn't look like it's peaked yet, you know, but you know, if, if you kind of dig into that data and fast forward six months from now, it's probably going to be a lower rate. Is that what you see? Yeah. This inflation? Well, it's interesting. You know, I don't, I'm not totally, I think the Fed, the Fed has an impossible job. I mean, I, I think that what they're doing is they're not able to do what I do basically, which is I look at basically nothing but like forward looking indicators of inflation all day, because I'm trying to mm-hmm. think out, you know, I'm, I'm managing financial assets. So I have to think out, you know, 12, 24, 36 months, you know, in the case of the bond market, like the bond market is a five-year instrument, basically. Like you can't just look at the next five months and worry about what bonds are doing. So if you're trying Mm -hmm. to get a comprehensive aggregate view, but if you look at most of the leading indicators, like you look at supply chains, you know, there are the supply chain indexes come in, in a huge way, normalized Mm -hmm. Um, things like shipping rates out of China or, you know, through the Pacific huge collapse in prices. You look at all of the price indices through the manufacturing surveys, like we got, you know, the Empire State Manufacturing Index and the Philadelphia Fed today. You look at things like prices paid, prices received, huge collapse in those indices. And the, you know, the Fed, the Fed can't afford to just look at that stuff and say, okay, well, this gives us comfort to not have to be aggressive because they're going off of these rearview looking indicators like things like the CPI and the PCE, which are just, you know, they're not they're not these forward looking or, or coincident type in- indicators. You're looking at a year over year rate of change based on a year ago. And so they're under huge amounts of of political pressure, really, to be certain that they don't make a policy mistake that results in something like the 1970s. And so, well, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like uh, they can make a mistake. They just can't make the mistake that they just made, right? It's like trying to avoid the mistake that they just made might- Well, you uh, know, and to be fair, they can't make a mistake that results in like a Zimbabwe because when mm-hmm. you when you go Zimbabwe, you'd never come back, you know? I mean, right. that if you get a hyperinflation, and this is the, the really screwy thing with inflation is that I'm- I've spent most of my adult life studying inflation. I still don't know what causes inflation because it's so <laughs> particular to any sort of environment yep. and, and any 
economy, frankly. It's very, you know, the, the Zimbabwean economy is a totally different animal than something like the United States economy. So, you know, it's very specific to each economy. But that's the thing. If you, if you go through something like a Zimbabwe or a hyperinflation or, heck, even the 1970s, it mm-hmm. is so scarring to so many people that mm-hmm. people will forever look at that and, you know, it's a it's a, a big part of why the economics profession is the way it is, is because the 1970s scarred economists so badly in that era that they came out of it saying never again. We are never going to let that happen again. And so you started to get this very, um, you know, focused, um, I think, policy view on maintaining a very low rate of inflation where policy was never causing, you know, too much of a gyration in the rate of inflation. And it took something like COVID to really, you know, knock mm-hmm. us off that that perspective. But but yeah, in general, um, you know, the the current environment is one that when you look at, you know, the overall trends, I think, especially the forward looking trends, it's becoming increasingly difficult to create a narrative, I think, where you have a very high sustained inflation. And, you know, the I think the more likely scenario here is that not that inflation is going to come down fast, but that um, you will you will see a more and more persistent rate of disinflation as we head into especially 2023. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, I the interesting thing is that some of the structural issues are still not resolved. You know, for instance, the the little tiny computer chip that all the cars need or whatever. So even still, you know, two years later, we still have some of those issues dogging us. So, you know, I could see there being disinflation and maybe the rate lands at 5% or something. It's a lot yeah, lower I mean, than it is now. It. I, it's kind of, a lot of the last couple of years has been screwy because I think that, um, I mean, frankly, COVID just lasted a lot longer than people expected. Like we had, you know, we're still getting waves of it. I still know people who are getting sick. You know, it's like this thing's been around a lot longer than I think a lot of us had hoped for. And so that created a lot longer disruption in supply chains and the broader economy than than people had hoped for. But you also had things like, you know, like who could have predicted you know, that the Ukraine war would happen. I mean, the one of the biggest commodity producing countries in the world basically gets shut down and blown up. I mean, that that caused a that was the point where I kind of at the, you know, the Q3, Q4 last year, I was like, I was starting to feel really good about the rate of inflation starting to really start to moderate. And then, you know, the Ukraine war started to happen. I was like, oh, crap, all bets are off now because now all the data is going to get bumped a year out because mm-hmm. you're going to get, you know, core inflation readings feeding through from the commodity boom from the Ukraine war that push all of this out. And so that's the other thing that's made a lot of this just so unusual is that you've had these drivers that just they lasted a lot longer than a lot of people were expecting. And, you know, something like the Ukraine war, obviously, is just like kind of an anomaly. Are you the, the brightest geopolitical minds in the world. And as of like last September, we're saying, oh, this isn't going to really happen. And then Putin just rolled in. So, you know, talk about unpredictability of of the global macro economy. Absolutely. And uh, Colin, I think I want to put a pin in it because I want to cover all of the effects 
uh, you know, interest rates and inflation on the housing market, on the real estate market. So for our viewers and listeners, uh, we're going to cut this episode here. Tomorrow, we're going to release part two of my interview with Colin Roach, where we're going to cover the housing market and, uh, you know, inflation's effects on the real estate market. So stay tuned. it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.